Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, you can follow along. The insert, which is found in your bulletin, has the passage there for you. As you're turning, let me ask you a question. Um, I'm curious, don't answer out loud, this is a rhetorical question. What is on your summer playlist? And some of you are scratching your heads, what, what are you talking about? I don't know what a summer playlist is. Well, maybe you should know what a summer playlist is. Maybe you should have a summer playlist. For those of us who love music, myself included, a summer playlist is just a collection of songs that you compile for a particular season in your life. Maybe it's some dance music for your car to just keep you going. Maybe it's some quiet music as you read. What is your summer playlist? Well, I already told you last week that I don't want to start a new book study uh, here in the summer months with so many of you in and out. Uh, But today, and for at least the next three weeks, at least the next four weeks, I want to do a mini-series of sorts. A mini-series that meditates on the songs of David. I want to create a summer playlist for you all. The Lord's servant David is not only one of the most familiar characters in all of the Bible, but he's also one of the most prolific authors of psalms. These poems and prayers and songs that God's people sang... They not only expose David's heart, but they expose our hearts. They not only are the voice of David, but they give us voice as well. And they give us God. They reveal God to us. And those are just some of the reasons why I love the Psalms. I don't need to tell you that, though. We've looked at a lot of Psalms over the past five years since I've been here. Every year we've spent some time meditating on the Psalms, but we've never looked at these four. These are new ones, though they will probably be familiar to you. The much-loved writer C.S. Lewis wrote about Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So if you like C.S. Lewis, if you like Narnia, you're going to like Psalm 19. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. Psalm 19, I'm going to read the whole thing. Follow along as I read. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. 
and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask another question. It's a question that uh, we often ask folks we don't know. Tell me about yourself. Tell me your story. Give me a glimpse of, of who you are, of what you're about. To know and to be known is human. It's part of what we were made for. We, we need it. As we sit here this morning as a worshiping community of the triune God, an important fact for us to know in that need is that God doesn't have it. God doesn't need to be known. You see, the knowledge and the love that exists within the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is sufficient for all eternity. God doesn't need to be known, but here's a follow-up fact that will blow your mind. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to see who He is. He wants you to respond to who He is. And this, brothers and sisters, this psalm is a song that reminds us of that truth. It's a song of revealing. It's a song of revelation. This is praise for a God, the God, who has not hidden Himself from us, but has proclaimed His character, His will, and His heart in bold and beautiful ways that bring us life and that bring us joy. That's what Psalm 19 is all about. And that's some of what David captures for us. As we walk through this psalm, I want to do so meditating on three truths that God speaks to us here today. Our passage divides very nicely, like a lot of psalms do, into three stanzas, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 11, and verses 12 through 14. And the first truth is from the first stanza, and it's this. Life on earth is lived under the Creator. Life on earth is lived under the Creator. I want to read the beginning of an article that was in our denomination's magazine. Maybe you didn't know our denomination had a magazine, but it does. It's called By Faith. And they had an article a few years back, and it started off like this. It said, it may not be long before your local Home Depot carries self-cleaning windows. And if it happens, the credit should go in part to the amazing lotus blossom. 
People have wondered for years why lotus blossoms are always clean. Nothing, not dust or smog or debris, dirties these bright white flowers. Engineers studying the flower's surface have found that the petals are covered with a microscopic texture in a pattern that makes the petals self-cleaning. Anything that lands on the flower simply falls off. With that knowledge, engineers have created plate glass windows that share the lotus blossom's microscopic pattern and its special characteristic. Nothing sticks to them. Wow. The wonder of the universe that we live in. And specifically in Psalm 19, the wonder of the universe that is above us. You can almost imagine David the shepherd. David the shepherd, David the poet and ponderer sitting in the stillness of the Judean wilderness as he keeps his flocks over the night watch. And in the evening, he sits on the hillside and he watches these these orange hues blaze across the sky. Then he gazes up into the starry night and he scans the expanse for those familiar clusters that he sees every evening. And after hours of gazing into the darkness, suddenly a glow begins to rise just before a beam of light comes blazing across the darkness as the sun begins to stretch and come out from its nightly slumber. See, the first six verses of Psalm 19, written by David in this beautiful, poetic form, they point us to a picture. They point us to a masterpiece of creativity, a masterpiece of beauty. And just as we can learn something about an artist as we gaze at that artist's product, so we learn something about God as we gaze at the heavens above. In theological terms, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, is teaching the truth of general revelation. That God has revealed Himself generally to all on earth. God has painted us a picture. It's a a moving picture. Everyone sees it. It's God's ministry through the sky. And every verse of the first stanza of Psalm 19 contains some aspect of this. Look at it with me for just a moment. Verse 1 proclaims that this is His work that He is the Creator, but that it reveals His glory. It reveals that He is glorious. It's the specific thing that Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. Our God is glorious. And it's obvious. Verse 2 goes on and emphasizes that this is a speech that is continuous. Never Not one second since the creation of the world has it not shared its message. 
It pours forth like a bubbling stream, like waves that continue to pound on the shore. The heavens declare the glory of God. The By Faith article that I just read about the lotus flower, it continues like this. It says, Ah, concluded a recent European TV program, the wonders of evolution to produce such design and elegance, such perfection. The lotus, it said, is a triumph of natural selection and the evolutionary process, and now its secret has been discovered and copied by humans, the pinnacle that evolution has here on earth. On this very point, the preacher Charles Spurgeon writes, they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscience, conscious intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding creator that no unprejudiced person can remain unconvinced by them. The testimony of the heavens is no mere hint, but a plain, unmistakable declaration. What's the key, what's the key word in that quote from Charles Spurgeon following the conclusion of the European television show? It's that word, unprejudiced. You see, in our broken state, we are prejudiced to see what's really there. We can't see what's really there. And especially in our urban, our scientific, our technological age, our spiritual blindness affects us all the more. And yet, if what David says is true, and it is, then the creation of the world and God as creator is indeed a starting point in confronting unbelief. Even though it hardens, the same knowledge hardens that which causes us to worship. Life on earth is lived under the creator. In verses 5 and 6, before we get out of this first stanza, David moves to talking about the sun. The sun is arguably the greatest force in our experience, and for that reason it has been worshipped in the ancient world. Ra, the sun god, was huge in the Egyptian worldview. David gives us two metaphors when he talks about the sun. He says, first, the sun is a bridegroom emerging from a chamber. Just just think about that image for just a moment. The bridegroom emerging from his wedding chamber after arguably the best day and evening of his life. And he's beaming with joy. And then David goes on and he says, and the sun is like a, a runner like a strong man running its course, trained to run, experience the sheer pleasure of of muscles in motion, fulfilling their purpose. One can't help but think of of the movie Chariots of Fire and that, that quote which is attributed to Eric Little, though he did not really say it, but he said it in the movie, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. You see, life on earth is lived under the Creator. 
And it's something all can see, and it's a point that we can talk to in a world of unbelief about who God is, who this God that we've gathered this morning to worship is. But the revelation of God in all that He has made and in the heavens above is more than just that. It's for our joy. It's for our joy. Those hues of orange and red and yellow that you see in the sky, that's for you. And our pleasure in His revelation is His glory. Do you understand that? When you are pleased by what He has made and when you give Him glory, then He is glorified. And so yes, do you tremble? Do you tremble at the thunder? I hope you do. But more than that, do you you see His love for you in a sunset? Do you feel His embrace in a cool ocean breeze? That's your God. Soak it up. We, of course, as humanity, have largely missed this. Instead, we make the objects of heaven objects of worship. We respond that this is just chance. We've exalted ourselves by explaining it all away. But we who sit here this morning know that this revelation of God calls us to worship. I never thought one of my sermon applications would be to take a walk. But I'm going to tell you, take a walk. Stop and smell the roses, literally, because they smell like God. Take time to soak in a sunset because it's God's gift to you. Rejoice that there's one who doesn't change, who loves to bring you joy, and humble yourself before such Knowledge. Life on earth is lived under the Creator. Oh, but there's so much more in Psalm 19. And that brings us to the second truth that I want us to see, and that's this. Life in the kingdom is lived out of the Word. Life in the kingdom is lived out of the Word. You see, this psalm is not merely about the experience of humanity, about living merely on earth. It's ultimately about living on earth as citizens of another kingdom. Those of you who were here last week know that we talked about that a bit. God didn't just create us to be worshipped. He gives us His Word that He might be followed. And David makes this abrupt shift in verse 7 of Psalm 19. He's been using the common designation for God, the Hebrew word El. And now in these next verses, he switches to the name that was not spoken, the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. And seven times he'll use it before he's through, giving us a framework for thinking about and meditating on God's creation. Three groupings of six in verses 7 through 11, six nouns that are synonymous terms for God's written revolution, six adjectives that describe those terms, and then six 
verbs that describe what God's Word does. Well, we're not going to focus on all of that. We don't have time for all of that. But I want to blow through some of it to, to show you the richness of what David writes here. First, the nouns. He says the law. And I'm not going to give you the Hebrew words either, just the English words that you see in your Bible translations. The law. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. This is the most comprehensive term for God's instruction to man. And it has to do not merely with commands, like the Ten Commandments is what we often think of when we think of the law, but it has to do with all of God's word to man, all of God's instruction to us. End of verse 7, he says, testimony. This is an aspect of truth that's attested to by God Himself. This word could very well be used to describe the Ten Commandments. This is the word that's used in Exodus 25.16 when the Lord instructs Moses to put the testimony, that is the two tablets, into the Ark of the Covenant. Precepts and commandments are another two words that are used there. These words have to do with the precision and the authority of God's commands. We might call them orders, non-negotiables. And then finally, rules. God's judgments or verdicts. The divine evaluation of our thoughts and our actions. All those words having to do with His Word. And then we have the adjectives. Perfect, no deficiency in any way, sure, confirmed, verified, worthy of trust, right, morally good, pure and clean. If we think about corrupt things decaying, then this is the insistent that God's law is pure and will endure. And then finally, true, God's word is dependable. You see the the repetition that David uses here, and of course, one thinks of Psalm 119 as well, those of you who know God's Word. The repetition of words and the variation of words. It's like David is, is just piecing together this diamond. This diamond that is God's Word. It's a word to be marveled at. And it's a, world that, it's a word that has an effect on us. And that's the last thing to notice in these verses, that number one, God's word revives the soul. God's word revives the soul. Jesus was in the wilderness tempted by Satan. What did he say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He wasn't kidding to the citizen of God's kingdom, to the believer, God's Word is the inner nourishment that we must have for life. David also says that God's Word makes the wise simple, enlightens the eyes, and rejoices the heart. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7 says. We know that God's Word helps us make sense of that which is confusing. The world around us. And our own broken experience in that world. God's Word speaks into that experience and calls us to trust it. 
Like Psalm 13, that psalm we looked at, I think, last year. Trust your instruments when you can't see. And so David, after he fashions this diamond with all these words and all these descriptions and all these characteristics, he says, this is good. Don't just intellectually understand this. Don't just know it. But this is so good, you got to taste this. It's better than honey. Sweeter than honeycomb. I wish I had that kind of insatiable desire for God's Word. Something we can only pray for, recognizing that life in the kingdom is lived by His Word. We need to love that Word and hold it dear and recognize what it is. And so I don't know about you, but you're probably in the same place I am, in the same place that David found himself in as he looked at the glory of the heavens and the Creator God as he meditated on the Word of God, its perfections, its beauty, how delicious it is. And David looks at himself and says, oh no, oh no. And that's the third truth that I want us to think about this morning. And it's this. There is no life without grace. Life on the earth is lived before the Creator. Life in the kingdom is lived by His Word. But there is no life without grace. And David reminds us of that fact because God's revelation leads us there. Verse 12, the beginning of the third stanza, David takes this, this, this second abrupt turn. He's humbled by the immensity of God, by the righteous requirements of the law, and, and he's driven to confession. He's driven to cry out for forgiveness. He is undone, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he saw the holiness of God, became undone. And David's undone unless someone intervenes. And you think one who has seen the glory of God, one who has tasted the sweetness of His Word, or at least acknowledged that that taste needs to be there, wouldn't have any issues with sin, right? We shouldn't have any issues with sin. I'm 41 years old. I don't know a day in my life when I haven't known who God was and who Jesus is. Why do I keep sinning? But David says, David acknowledges in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Sin is baffling. Sin sneaks up on us still. And then in verse 13, keep your servant, ba- keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Sin not only sneaks up on us, but we sin with our eyes wide open. Simply put, the end of Psalm 19 leaves us with a need. A need for pardon and power. 
And so the word of creation in the first stanza, followed by the word of the law in the second stanza, is ultimately concluded by the final word in the third stanza, the Lord Jesus. I know that you don't see Jesus' name there. His name's not written. He hadn't been born and won't be born for hundreds of years. But as we, sitting on this side of the coming of the Lord Jesus, as we come to this same point that David came to, where else could we run? I mean, one might expect David to run from the God of nature, to run from the God of the law, especially when he turns inward and realizes who he is. But he doesn't. He runs to his rock and his Redeemer. It's that last verse. That last verse, the last phrase, the last three references to this God who has revealed Himself to His people. You are my Lord. You are Yahweh, the God who has entered into covenant with Me. You are my rock. You are dependable. You have given Me Your Word. You are worthy to be relied upon. And You are my Redeemer. I know. I don't know how. But I know, David says, that You will save me. And indeed, the Lord has saved us. He saved us through Jesus. God's revelation in creation is glorious. God's revelation in His Word is trustworthy, sure, righteous, and and on and on. But it's His revelation in Jesus that is the crown of it all, that holds it all together. Life on earth. Life in the kingdom. Life that is all grace. That's Psalm 19. Add it to your summer playlist. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Oh, Father, these are such wonderful truths for us to be reminded of, to dwell on. We all have people in our lives who are blind to the glory of the heavens that declare you. Oh, Father, give us opportunity, give us divine appointments to with boldness and confidence and winsomeness speak the truth to them. Father, we recognize the beauty, the value, the riches of Your Word. We confess that we don't give it the attention that it deserves. Oh, Father, may we truly taste and see that Your Word is good. Father, may we do this in the context of the fact that You are a God who saves. And Your final Word and Your greatest revelation to us is the Lord Jesus. And it's in Him that we hide. It's in Him that we hope. It's Him that we long to be like. So teach us and grow us by His Spirit, we pray. Amen.